Close your eyes. Close your eyes. You too. <laughs> With your eyes closed, what do you see? Exactly. Now you can open your eyes. That's what it looked like before he spoke. And then he said, light. And there was light. And the scripture says that he separated the light from the darkness one day, and it was good. And then came the second day, and on the second day it says he separated the waters above from the waters below and created an expanse in the middle that we call sky or heaven. And he looked upon all of that after two days of work and he said, it is good. On day three, he expanded his work and uh, he created the seas. He caused the water to come together in one place and dry land to come up in another place. And he put plants all over the dry land for food and he looked at it all and all that he had done in three days and he said, it's good. And on the fourth day, he took the sun and flung it into the sky. And he took the moon and placed it exactly where it needs to be in every single planet, in every single star. And he knew each one by name. And he looked upon all of that and he said, man, this is good. And then on day five, he filled the oceans with life. And the, and the sea creatures and the fish and all that lives in the ocean. And then he also created the birds and everything that flies in the air. And he looked at all of this and he said, it is good. And then finally, finally, finally came day six. The, the crowning jewel of his creation. On day six, he creates all of the land animals. And finally, as if the cherry on top of the Sunday, he creates mankind in his own image and likeness. And after six days of creation, and with mankind sitting at the top of the chain of all that, he has com um, all that he has created, God looks upon his creation and he says, it is very good. Kind of weird, right? Everything was very good. Mosquitoes? Cockroaches? Brussels sprouts? <laughs> it says he looked upon it all and went, that is very good. Everything was good. And that's what we get in Genesis chapter 1, that picture. And then it goes on in chapter 2 and gives us sort of a recap of all of that. And we keep going and looking at all of this good creation of God. And then finally, we come to Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. And there in verse 18, the Lord says that something is not good. For the first time in all of the history of creation, something is not good good. And the thing that is not good, it says in Genesis 2.18, is it is not good for the man to be alone. So, so here's this situation, right? For the first time in history, there's something that isn't good, and that is for man to be alone. 
Now, think about this for a second. We sang about this just a second ago. Praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the Spirit, three in one. What do we know about God? Well, one of the things we know about God is that God by nature is relational, that even before he created anything or anyone, he was already in relationship with himself in the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, always existing, one God in three persons. If you can understand how that works, good for you, because I don't. But I can tell you this, God has always existed as one God in three persons, and God has always been able to manifest his relational nature in that way. He did not create us because he was lonely. He did not create us because he was bored. God is by nature relational. So we know this about God. Here's the other thing. It says out of all of those things he created, only one thing created in the image and likeness of God, and that's people. And part of what it means to be created in the image of God is that we too are by nature relational. We were not created like plants, We were not created like rocks. We were not even created like bears or house cats. We were created to be in community, created to be in relationship with one another. And we talk about this all the time around here because it's such a foundational truth, but we cannot experience the life that God designed us to live apart from that kind of community. We have to live in relationships. Now, I want you to picture this. You're on the first floor of a building, and you really need to get to the second floor. So how are you going to get there? We got options. You could go outside and climb up the drain pipe. You could try that. You could get a really fast running start and try to jump into the second story window. I don't recommend that. Um, You could uh, build a catapult. That might work. Or you could take the stairs. Or better yet, what if there's an escalator? I heard a comic talking about that. He said, you know what, I, I, I love escalators because they never break. When they stop working, they just become stairs. That's the idea. That an escalator will actually carry us to the next level. And so we're using this sort of imagery in this series on wisdom of an escalator because the idea is that as we begin to grapple with biblical wisdom and apply principles to our lives and build the foundation of biblical wisdom in our lives, it elevates our life to the next level. So wherever you're at in your marriage, in your career, in your personal life, and you want to grow and you want to become and you want to move to the next level, you're going to have to keep pouring biblical wisdom into your life. That's where we're going with all of this. And so, so far we've been talking about this. We said, uh, for instance, that um, there's wisdom in learning how to stay back from the edge of the cliff, right? Right? There's wisdom in learning how to avoid the traps of temptation. We talked about that. We talked about the fact that a wise person actually embraces difficulties knowing that sometimes the hardest things in our lives are actually the biggest blessings and that we can always count on God to do what God does to use all circumstances 
for good. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. We talked last week about the importance of taking God's word and hiding it in your heart because when the word of God becomes the foundation for your life, it takes you in a completely different direction than if you just trusted your own heart. We talked about that last week. And today, we're going to talk about the wisdom of building a supportive community. And you would think we wouldn't even need to mention this. You would think we wouldn't even need to talk about this. After all, we're surrounded by people. Have you been on the 210 lately? We are surrounded by people, right? And yet, it's an interesting thing to be surrounded by people and to be the loneliest generation in American history. What's going on there? We're going to talk about that today. So, where did we leave off? Oh yeah, Genesis chapter 2, right? You got Bibles? You can find the book of Genesis. I believe in you. It's right at the beginning. Open your Bible to Genesis. Go to Genesis chapter 2. And we're going to sort of pick up where we left off in Genesis chapter 2. And we're going to pick it up in verse 21. Remember in verse 18, he just said, It is not good for the man to be alone. He had created Adam in his own image. And Adam is the only human being. And he says, It's not good. Human beings are not designed to be alone. And so he addresses the issue. Verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother, be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed." Now, this is a passage that when we read it, we think about marriage. We think about the, the mystery of marriage and how God brings two individual people together and makes them one and creates something that didn't exist out of these two people. But there's a lot more to this than just what it says about marriage. There's actually some foundational wisdom here that we can see that is about the way God designed life to be. Okay, so we're going to think about it that way. Um, it's about living life in healthy community. And in, and in this discussion, verse 25, the last verse we just read, turns out to be really important. Let me read it again. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Are you allowed to say naked in church? <laughs> I guess it's right here in the book. So I, if you're mad... Write to God at Bible.com and complain. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. See, this is a perfect relationship. There's unity here. She's taken out of him. He calls her woman because she's been taken out of man. He says, this is now flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. I don't look at her as something other, as someone other. I, I have this unity with her. And the two of them have this unity together. And the amazing thing about this relationship is that in this relationship, though they are naked, they are not ashamed. No shame. A perfect relationship 
with no shame, no division, no uh, competing interests, no jealousy, no bitterness, nothing to hide, literally naked in one another's presence with absolutely no self-consciousness, no discomfort, no shame. Just God and people knowing and being known. Not exactly the way things are today, is it? Interesting. And chapter 3 explains what this is all about. Now, I know that you think you know the story. I know that you think you know what happens next and how this whole thing gets messed up. And you probably have a glimpse of it. It's something about a snake and an apple or maybe it was a tangerine. I don't know, something like that. And, and how everything goes to pot from this point. And you can know that story, but you may not really recognize what's going on below the surface. Remember, God exists eternally in three persons. Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God is by nature relational. He decides to create everything, and he does it apparently so that he can create mankind, and he gives mankind um, control and responsibility and stewardship over all the rest of creation. And in so doing, he creates perfect community between him and people and between people and one another. Now, there are people living in community with God and with each other, and everything is just as it should be. And then what happens? God has set this great plan in motion to create community with him and with others. Remember, we talked about this so often, the great commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's what we call vertical relationship, my relationship with God. You will love the Lord your God with all heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it, you will love your neighbor as yourself. It's the horizontal relationship that God created us to be in relationship with him and he created us to be in relationship with one another. And all of a sudden, things get out of control. If you look down at uh, chapter three, verse one. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, as God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you surely shall not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. This is where it all falls apart. Satan has a desire to disrupt everything that God is trying to do. And since Satan has no way to directly attack God, what does he do? He attacks us because we're created for a relationship with God and a relationship with one another. And if he can um, impede those relationships, then he can uh, weaken our relationship with God. He can weaken our relationship with one another. He can destroy the community that God created us to live in, and we cannot function the way God created us to function. So how's he going to disrupt this community between the people? 
he starts by attacking the community between us and God. He begins by telling a lie and saying, God's not on your side here. In fact, he's trying to keep you under his thumb. If, in fact, you just do what you want instead of doing what he says you should do, then you'll actually be your own God. You won't need a God. You won't have to bow down to anybody. You can just do whatever you want, be your own God, and everything will be fine. Let's throw God out of the equation. Let's get rid of the community that you have between you and God. Be your own God. You don't need him. And of course, we all know that their rebellion at this point interrupts their intimacy and their community with God, but that's not where the damage ends. Look at uh, verse 7. Verse 7, then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? All right, there's a lot there. But we get this picture, this fellowship with God. God comes to be with them in the garden in perfect intimacy and community. And where are they? Hiding. And we find out they're hiding because they're afraid. They're hiding because they're ashamed. But it's not just their relationship with God that gets interrupted here. Their relationship with each other starts going off the rails at this point as well. And we've talked about this many times before. I'm not going to spend a ton more time on this, but I want you to notice a couple things. Number one, they are ashamed in each other's presence. There had been no danger. There had been no reason for shame. There had been no guilt. There had been nothing to interrupt their relationship with one another. And now, immediately, as soon as they rebel against God, they are ashamed in each other's presence and they start looking for ways to cover themselves up from each other. And so they sow fig leaves together and they hide among the trees. And so they're hiding from each other, but they're also hiding from God. Look at verse 10. It says, he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid. Afraid. Adam, afraid of his maker. Afraid of God. This this lie has been put into his head. Maybe God doesn't have your best interests at heart. Maybe it's not safe to follow God. Maybe it's not safe to walk with God. And so he is now afraid of God. He says, I was afraid, so I hid. And then verse 11, it goes on and says, and he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? This is like when, you know, your parents come and they find you jumping on the bed. And, and they're hearing the sound of it, but when they open the door, there's no more excuses. There's no way to say, uh, no, I wasn't doing it. Th- there you are. You're caught red-handed. And, and God asks them this question, just like good parents ask this question, hey, where'd you get that candy? They know exactly where you got the candy, 
They know exactly what you've done. They know exactly what's happened. They don't ask the question because they lack information. They ask the question in order to penetrate your heart, right? And God says to Adam, hey, who told you you were naked? Have you by any chance eaten of the tree I told you not to eat from? And immediately, once they realize they're caught, it's on. So if you read the next few verses, and we won't read them all here because I think most of us are familiar. If you read the next couple of verses, what you see is that this wonderful husband, Adam, takes his wife and throws her directly under the bus. And after the bus crosses over her, he puts it in reverse, backs it back up, and runs over her again. Right? His immediate response, and by the way, he's, he's blaming everybody but himself. He goes, the woman... By the way, God, I was fine. I did not ask for this woman. I went to bed, I woke up, and she was there. And granted, at first, I was impressed. But after a while, I realized, you know what? Maybe this is not a good deal. This woman, by the way, God, you gave her to me. I didn't ask for her, but you gave her to me. And, and so really, whatever has happened here, it's probably your fault, God. If it's not your fault, it's certainly her fault. Because the woman that you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit and I ate. And you get the impression that he's like, you know, she baked this pie. I didn't know what was in it. I just went ahead and ate. But when you read the account, you realize it says he was with her the whole time. This is not her fault. This is their fault. They did this together. But he throws her under the bus. And so God does. He turns to Eve and goes, well, what do you have to say for yourself? And Eve doesn't know what to say for herself. And so she's like, well, you know, the serpent. You're the one that put the serpent in this garden. And the serpent deceived me. I mean, I didn't even know there was such a thing as deception. How would I know? And so it's not my fault, it's not my fault, but here's what I know, I don't really like her anymore. (laughs) I'm not really comfortable with him anymore. By the way, and I maybe just ask you ladies this, you wives in particular, what do you suppose it did to the intimacy of their marriage to have him throw her under the bus like that? What do you suppose it did to to her sense of being able to be vulnerable with this guy? What happened to this is now flesh in my flesh and bone in my bones? Now it's like, I don't really know her, but she did this. What do you suppose that did to their relationship? So he blames her and God. She blames the serpent and God. And God tells them all that what he had said all along is true, that because of their rebellion now, they've put themselves under a curse. And there's going to be brokenness in relationships. Now they live with shame. Now they live with fear. Now there are walls up between them. There are walls up between them and God. And we already know it was not good for man to be alone, but when you throw sin into the equation, you go, huh, maybe it's not good for man to be together either. So I don't have to explain any of this to you guys because you're all human beings. And so every one of us knows what it is to lose trust in somebody. Every one of us knows what it is 
to rightfully feel shame in our own lives. Every one of us knows what it is to feel fear and to be afraid to open up in relationships. Every one of us knows what it is to watch walls go up between us and others and even watch walls go up between us and God due to the fact that somebody hasn't been trustworthy. But none of this changes the fact that God created us to live in community. Community with Him, vertical relationship. Community with one another, horizontal relationship. And uh, you're going, okay, what does this have to do with wisdom? Well, I'm glad you asked. Turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. So um, we've been in Proverbs quite a bit. If you get to Proverbs, you just keep turning right and you'll come to Ecclesiastes. And it's right there after Proverbs. And I want you to go to Ecclesiastes chapter four. Now, Solomon, as you know, the wisest man who ever lived, he, he wrote most of the book of Proverbs, and he also wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. And this is uh, amongst the books that we call wisdom literature in the Old Testament. And here in the wisdom literature of Solomon, in Ecclesiastes chapter four, beginning in verse nine, follow along and let me read it to you. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion, but woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm, but how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. Why is community so important? Because we are simply better together than we are apart. That's how we were created. Why should we be unwilling to settle for lives characterized by bitterness and lives characterized by anger and mistrust and the walls that go up between us and those who we perceive to have hurt us or those who we perceive to be dangerous to us, or those who we know we have been dangerous to them. And the walls go up. Why should we live that way? Why should we decide that life in community is better than that? I'll give you a simple answer. Right here from Ecclesiastes. Because sometimes we all fall down. Amen? Amen. Sometimes we all fall down. You guys, you got an extra hour of sleep last night. What are you doing sleeping during the sermon? Either that or you're still like uh, Adam going, well, you know, I was just in the the trees. I didn't know you were going to be here. Uh, Sometimes we all fall down, right? Yeah, sometimes we all fall down, and when we fall down, we will need somebody to help us up. And in our pride, we try to think that's not true of us. We think, you know, I'm doing just fine. I'm probably not going to fall down. But the truth of the matter is, every one of us knows from experience, I don't care if you're 12 years old in here or if you're 1,200 years old, I know this, you have fallen down, and you have needed 
help. And he says two are better than one because if one falls down, there will be one there to lift him up. He also talks about keeping warm. In isolation, we all get cold sometimes, literally or figuratively. And we need the warmth of community. We all come under attack sometimes. He says if one person is walking alone and he gets attacked, he's toast. But if that person is walking with someone, then they can defend each other and they can avoid the devastation of the attack. Sometimes we all come under attack. Sometimes we need somebody who will fight on our side. Sometimes we don't even have the strength to fight at all, and we need somebody who will step up and fight on our behalf. So sometimes we fall down, sometimes we get cold, sometimes we come under attack, and we need other people. Guys, to need other people is not a sign of weakness. To need other people is a sign that you were created in the image of God because he created us for community. That's what you and I were created for. Let's illustrate it from the New Testament. Uh, you remember, uh, you don't have to turn there, but this would be a great thing for you to study uh, this week at home during your quiet times. Uh, in Luke chapter five, there's this story that is told, a true story about a paralyzed man who has absolutely nothing going for him. He doesn't have um, good health. He, he's uh, uh, apparently a quadriplegic, cannot take care of himself in any way. He, he is a social outcast. He doesn't have any influence. He doesn't have any money. Uh, he doesn't have any power. He doesn't have any reason to have any hope that any of this is going to change. But one thing he did have going for him, he had amazing friends. He had amazing friends. When his friends heard that Jesus was in town, when his friends heard that Jesus had the power to heal, his friends went over to his house, picked up the stretcher that he was laying on, and carried him however far they had to carry him to get to the place where Jesus was. And they carried him on this stretcher to bring him to the place where he could get help because sometimes we all fall down and we need somebody to help pick us up. They carried him. And when they got there, the crowd around the house where Jesus was was so big that they had absolutely no hope of getting near Jesus. So you know what they did? Yeah, you know what they did. They went outside, they climbed the wall, they got on the roof, they cut a hole in this dude's roof, <laughs> not in how to make friends and influence people. They cut a hole in the roof and they dropped the, the stretcher down right at the feet of Jesus and said, Jesus, help our friend. Amazing friends. Here's the thing. We all need to be carried from time to time. We all need people who love us. We all need people who will go the extra mile on our behalf. And there's so much going on in our world today that comes against this. Like, we're just saying, this seems like such obvious wisdom. 
Like, of course we need people. Of course we need families. Of course we need communities. Of course we need friends. Of course none of us can do this alone. And yet there's so much, especially right now in our society, in this culture, that is screaming against this truth. And there is a, ten, a, a trend toward isolation like we have never seen before. And it's been happening for a long time, but I've never seen it happen like it happened when COVID hit, Right? once we realized that there was this virus and, and I'm, this is not a discussion about your opinion about this virus, okay? Once we realized that there was a deadly virus, they said, everybody in your house, be by yourself, be alone. And we all, out of fear and reason, decided that we had to have some level of isolation in our lives and we all used our own determination as to what that level of isolation needed to be based on our health and our convictions and our understanding of the truth and all that kind of stuff. But you guys, for a very, very long time, we didn't gather together. I mean, how many weeks and months in a row did uh, I and the worship team come in here to an empty room with some cameras and have a worship service with no one in the room. And, the, and we did the best we could, didn't we? We did the best we could. We watched it on our computers. We watched it on TV. We, we did the best we could. We're still doing the best we can. But, but just from that season, the percentage, the rise in depression in this culture, astronomical. The rise in the suicide rate in our culture, astronomical during that time. One of the reasons for that is because God designed us to be in community and whatever interrupts that community can create difficulty. And you know, I, I, I maybe have shared this with you all or maybe with some of you before, but every year, um, it gets to be around this time of year, uh, late November really, or early December, I just have a personal um, tradition where I just spend extended time in prayer and seeking God and trying to have an understanding for what God's saying to me about uh, his plan for the next year of my life, what God may be saying about our church and where we need to be going. And I just sort of have a focused time. And in, in December of 2019, I came out of that focused time with this sense, um, I need to pray against divisiveness. And I thought, okay, well, there's an election coming. Do you guys remember the 2020 election? It was a little divisive, right? Um, and by the way, we're voting this week. It's a little divisive. And, um, and I thought, well, okay, there's, there's, gonna be this, there's gonna be this election. People are gonna, like even in the same church, voting different ways, and people are gonna be upset with one another. And I started praying for unity. I had no idea what was going to happen that year. I had no idea about the, the George Floyd killing and what that was going to do. And not just George Floyd, but many other racially related events that drew, that, that just put walls between people based on race. I had no idea there was going to be such a rise in prejudice, a rise in bitterness, a rise in judgmentalism. Um, that we, we divide now along political lines, 
We divide along racial lines. We divide along economic lines. We divide along any lines we can find to divide along. And we want to know that I'm not on your side and you're not on my side. And the walls just go up. And this is getting worse in our society. It is not getting better. And by the way, when it comes to um, isolation, many, many, many people spend more time one-on-one with an electronic device of some sort than they do with another human being on a daily basis. We settle for Facebook friends and Instagram followers because it's easier to do that than investing the time and energy and the inevitable pain of building real relationships with other people. Instead of participating in the local church, really starting with the COVID thing. And since then, it it has become easier to watch a local church of your choice on some sort of a screen than it is to come to a room like this and actually sit together with other people and deal with other people's stuff. And it's tempting to do that. And we are paying the price through our genuine lack of community And Satan is attacking God's people by putting up walls between us wherever we turn. That is the result of the curse. But I have good news. Jesus came to reverse the curse. When Jesus paid the price on the cross, he paid for our sin. When Jesus rose from the grave on the third day, he bought life back for us. That is the reversal of the curse. The curse was that if we disobey God, if we sin, we will surely die. And Jesus reversed the curse by paying the price for our sin and giving us new life again. Jesus reversed the curse. So yes, there's a curse. Yes, Satan is doing everything he can to fight against God's plan in our lives. But greater is he that is in me than he who is in the world. And, and in John chapter 17, we don't have time to turn there. In John chapter 17, we have Jesus praying for us. It's amazing. And he says specifically, he says, Lord, I'm praying for my followers, not just these ones, but in all the people of all time who will believe in me because of their word. He's praying for us. And when he's praying for us, his prayer is basically this, God, make them one. Unite them, build them into community. And if you're wondering how serious he is about that, he goes, just as you and I are one, Father, make them one. Let nothing divide them. And so a wise person will always invest in community, family, in their marriage, relationship with their children, their parents, in in significant, meaningful, deep friendships. In a local church family where we bear one another's burdens and laugh with those who laugh and rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. A wise person will build that community because we all need others. And guess what? Others need us too. Sometimes we all need to be carried and sometimes we all need to carry somebody. It's not just what you need. It's how God can use in the lives of others. And as we close, I want us to get this portrait in our minds. You know the story. You know the picture. It is the Passover week. 
Jesus and his disciples have come into Jerusalem and they know, at least Jesus knows, what's about to happen. He knows that in a matter of hours, he'll be arrested. He knows that following the arrest, the torture will begin. He knows that he will be nailed to a cross and drink the cup of God's wrath. He knows that he will cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knows he's about to go into the hardest time he could ever possibly face. And he knows that he has to do it because of his love for us. And so with all of that in mind, what does he do? He gathers his 12 closest friends. And he says, and this is in Luke chapter 22, he says this. He says, I have longing to gather with you and eat the Passover together with you guys. And he gets in that tight circle of the people that are closest to him. And he shares a vision with them of what the future should be. And then the Bible says he takes the bread and he breaks it and he talks about the symbolism. He says, this is my body, which is for you. Now take it and eat all of it. They shrug their shoulders. Who turns down bread? (laughs) They take the bread. They don't know what in the world he's talking about. And then he pours the wine into one big cup. He says, this is a new covenant in my blood. They knew about the covenants of God. They knew that they had failed to meet all of the human um, uh, requirements of the covenant. And he says, but I have a new covenant for you. It's in my blood. This is a covenant of grace. It's not about works. This is a covenant of forgiveness. It's not about self-righteousness. And he says, it's all represented here because this wine represents my blood. And they shrug their shoulders. I don't know what he's talking about. They would know soon, but they shared in the cup, the bread, the wine, and then they saw what was coming next. And from that point on, every opportunity they got, they gathered back together with other believers and they took bread and broke it. They said, this is Christ's body, which is for us. They understood now. They took wine and poured it and they said, this is Christ's blood, which is given for us for a new covenant in his blood. And they drank it together. And it was a unifying experience of worship. And Jesus said, keep doing this. And as often as you do it, do it in remembrance of me. And for the 2,000 some years since then, followers of Jesus have been doing that. You should have received one of these cups on your way in. If you didn't, slip up your hand if you need one of these. Okay, can uh, Chuck, can you help with this? And Bo, Bo's got a basket back there. Just leave your hand up until somebody brings you something. And while these guys are um, passing this out, let me just talk to you about this. It's very simple. It's uh, 21st century communion, right? You just peel the top part off of the small side. There's a little piece of bread in there. And then uh, we'll take the bread together. And then we'll pray. And then we'll open up the other side and we'll drink from the cup of grape juice. And this bread is a reminder of what he did for us. This juice is a reminder 
of what he did for us. And us following him in this act of worship is our united step as followers of Jesus that says, Lord, it is you that defines us. I will not be defined by my race. I will be defined by you. I will not be defined by my economic standing. I will be defined by you. I will not be defined by my political leanings. I will be defined by you. I will not be defined by my past and all the scars that I carry. I will be defined by you. I will not be defined by those who have hurt me or the walls that have gone up around me. I will not be defined by my sin. I will be defined by you, Lord Jesus. That's what this is. And so I want to give us a moment, just a few seconds, to just bow our heads and and quietly where you are, just begin to talk to the Lord silently in your heart, thanking him for making this fellowship possible. Maybe confessing whatever the Lord brings to your heart that you need to talk to him about. Let's open the bread, take out the cracker that is in there, and remember the words of Jesus, this is my body which is given for you, for forgiveness of sins. And on the other side, you open the juice. And remember the words of Jesus who said to all of us, this is my blood which is shed for you. It's a new covenant. It's not about how good you are. It's not about how religious you are. It's not about perfect attendance in Sunday school. It's not about how well you keep the commandments. It's not about any of that stuff. It is about the grace of God that washes away all of our sins. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Father, we just uh, want to say thank you. We thank you that you have seen fit to spill the blood of Jesus to set us free from the curse. And that that being set free doesn't just mean eternity with you. And if it just meant that, that would be enough. But it means so much more. It means that the walls are broken down between people. That we don't have to determine which camp someone is in before we can decide to love them. That we can walk hand in hand remembering what your word says, that a cord of three strands is not easily torn apart. Me and someone else and you, Lord, with our, our lives woven together, make a cord of three strands that cannot be easily broken. We thank you that you've given us this invitation to live in community we pray you would help us, Father, to do it faithfully. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.